Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Jam DiMatteis, writer of comics, television, movies, and the occasional novel. And you are listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Get close to the mic. Oh, I, I was talking a little bit louder into there, so I'll redo oh. that part, I guess. That's why I was going away. No, this is a good intro now. I like this. This is a variation from the norm. Well, McDonald? No, at Cheers. Da, 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 da. Go ahead. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. So, before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us yeah. on them, our social medias. Usual and very unusual. Go ahead. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there, a like or whatever. Go on Instagram and Twitter at Whatever. The Marvelists. <laughs> Not whatever. You said it. <gasps> I just wanted to breathe deep into the mic just now. Uh, but you can also find us individually on social media. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster, on Instagram and Twitter at Peter Melnick, and God knows why I'm on TikTok at Peter Melnick, but better. Seriously. So be- don't talk about it. You might not be there. Uh, don't tell people. Yeah, I got to squat the name at least, you know? Ew. Yeah, dare you, sir. There's only one place on the whole worldwide interwebs of social media that you can find Eddie Wilson. That's and that is- good. <laughs> only one. And it's on, well, that's a good Kanye West song with Paul McCartney, 2014. It was released as a single at the very end of the year. It kind of like intermingled between. I have not picked up on it, and it's been six years. Okay. It's a good song. But I digress. You can only find him on one social media platform, and that is on Instagram, at... Eddie9193. You can also listen to the show on a wide variety of streaming platforms. Tune in radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you can wrangle an RSS feed Yamo be there. Get on, little doggy. <laughs> you can also find us on iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe, and share, and be sure to keep it five stars, because four stars and below, Eddie. Eddie. Oh, he's uh, ignoring. Say what? <gasps> four stars or below is like the ice cream machine at McDonald's. It just does not work, just like this joke does every single time. This is where I was going to interject something as like a public service announcement, but not not today. <laughs> That wouldn't work either, I would imagine. Much like oh, that it will work. It will work. <laughs> well, if, in your situation, sure. It'll be worth waiting for. Lordy. Now, Eddie, on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with a very special guest. Eddie, I want you to do the honors. We'd like to introduce... Deuced? It's already over? It's past tense? <laughs> J.M. DeMatteis, thank you for joining us. Oh, pleasure. Now, listening to you guys, I'm wondering if you have modeled yourselves after Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. That is the best compliment I've ever wow. gotten. <laughs> I wow. love it. That's a first. Thank you. <laughs> well, if it can be a compliment, I guess, or the other way. I'm I'm erring on the side of a positive here, oh, but I, I could go either good, way. Good, good. We are very blue and golden right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> so, like... I'm orange and black today, but I mean, you know, it's just me. 
on the audio podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am beaming right now, so... <laughs> anyway, JM, first off, yeah. how did you get your introduction into the world of funny books? My professional introduction or just as a reader? Let's go with the reader first. Yeah. You know, I, I've said this to people before, but I honestly don't remember a time when I wasn't reading comic books. Uh, which is a weird thing. I'm sure there was a point, because there was a point when I couldn't read, you know. But, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, comics were just around. It was before the era of comic shops. It was like you would just work. I lived, grew up in Brooklyn. You'd walk to the local candy store. There were always comics. Yeah. And I have a vague memory of a cousin of mine giving me what at the time seemed like like a million comics. It was probably 15 or 20. <laughs> and I just remember laying them out on the floor and staring at them. And I just... There was something magical about them from the first moment I laid eyes on one, that, that magical interaction of words and pictures, and I fell in love with them, and I, and I haven't stopped since. Like Jumanji, oh, we never heard of it then either. Swing and a miss, Eddie. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> what? But, but we don't have to keep trying, are you? Thank you. <laughs> now, obviously, you know, growing up as a comic fan, there's... It's like sports teams. Like you have to pick one kind of favorite, you know. And myself, of course, I'm always going to say I'm a Marvel guy, but I do love the distinguished competition. I love Image. I love Dark Horse. And you know, for yourself, growing up as a comic reader, what was the brand alliance for yourself? Like you, you can only pick one. Yeah, you know. See, I can't because it, it shifted. Um, you know, again, growing up, you know, when I was a kid, it was the '60s. Uh, so let's go back. Let's go back in time. And there were just like a million different kinds of comics out there. You know, there was DC, there was Marvel, there was Archie, there was Dell, there was all this stuff, you know, everything from superheroes to comic books starring Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis and everything in between, you know. Um, but, you know, so when I was younger, though, if I had to pick one, it would be DC. But then when I was in junior high school, I had what I call my my religious conversion to Marvel, <laughs> which is sort of like, you know, when, when the mid-60s uh, peak of Lee Kirby and all that amazing material. And so, of course, at that age, you know, when you switch, it's like you switch. You don't look back, even though I would sneak back and occasionally buy a Superman or a Green Lantern. And then at a certain point, you know, you, get, like, you went, well, what's the difference? A comic book is a comic book. What's good is good, regardless of the company. And then it was just like, all right, let me read everything. I don't care whether it's DC, Marvel, an underground comic, you know, R. Crumb, whatever it is. It's a great comic. I'm going to read it. Do you remember, J.M., the uh, titles that you first started reading as your first comic books, that kind of thing? Oh, God, it's really hard, really yeah. hard. Like I said, because I, I would read anything if it had that combination of words and pictures, you know? Now, I do remember that my probably my favorite of DC was Justice League. And Green Lantern was the other one that I just adored as a kid. Um, and I think, I think it's really simple to see why that appeals to a kid, because really on one level, you know, we, we see Green Lantern as like a science fiction series, but it's also just this magic thing. It's, it's this person who gets a magic ring and uses his will and imagination to manifest whatever he wants. I mean, you could flip that around and, and turn that into a great kid's story, Yeah. So there's, there's something inherent in the premise of Green Lantern that I think is just made for a kid's brain. And I frankly think that that formula, I was just actually just writing about it. Uh, I just put a post on my website. That formula of will plus imagination equals manifestation is something we can all carry with us through our entire lives. You know, it's a, 
it's a fantastic premise. I just wasn't sure if there was any kind of correlation to the kind of material subject matter in the comics that you're reading that directly got, went to what you first published, which I see was in uh, 78, The Blood Boat, and a Weird Wars tale issue. Weird War but, Tales, that is, yeah. The, the only connection is I wanted to get into the business, and that's where you could sell stories, was to the DC Anthology books. You know what I mean? That's where they brought in new writers and trained them. So that's where I went to pitch. And uh, that's where I, I started working with Paul Levitz and learned uh, so much, so much about how to put a comic book story together and then worked with Jack Harris and Len Wein, who became uh, my mentor uh, in the business, really the first person that kind of looked at me and said, wow, you really, you have something there, and I really want to work with you and help you develop that. But Paul, Jack, Len, those guys early on were just uh, fantastic and really, really helped me learn all the basics of the business. Do you recall the uh, thought process for the first published work that that blood boat story was? You know, a bad dream. You had some bad pasta, and you woke up in a sweat. I mean, no, actually, the first story I thought was not that one. It was a story that ran in House of Mystery. After that, it was the first published story. Yes, I, uh, the first story that I sold had the uh, the deathless title of "The Lady Killer Craves Blood." Uh huh. You know, it was it was House of Mystery. It was Weird War Tales. You know, they wanted this this bizarro stuff so that the original first story this was like in i think i sold it in the december of 1977 and this is right after the summer of son of sam so the, so the premise of the story was that this son of sam like serial killer uh you know he used to go over to just show people's cars would be a couple in the car he'd start shooting um and uh the, in, in the story uh, the, the the boyfriend of the woman that gets killed turns out to be a vampire. So it's a story of a vampire hunting a serial killer, which actually I think about it now would be kind of an interesting movie, you know. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, that was just, it was just, you wrote what you had a right to sell a story and get your foot in the door in the business. I wasn't particularly a horror aficionado, but boy, did I write a lot of horror stories because that's what they were buying. And if they were buying science fiction, then I gave them a science fiction story. Um, so and, and Weird War Tales... I think before I started selling to Weird War Tales, I didn't even know that comic book existed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I certainly never read it. But they want Weird Tale War Tales, I'll give them the Blood Boat, which was another vampire story. It was a vampire on a PT boat in World War II, you know? Um, so you did what you had to do to uh, sell a story and learn your craft. Some of the more favorite, I mean, it's probably hard to, to narrow it down. You've got a long list of stuff that you've been involved with, Marvel, DC, or otherwise. But uh, given your choice, your preference, any particular style that is superhero character that you prefer or have felt that you did the best work in? You know, uh, one thing I've tried to do over the years is work in as many different styles and genres as possible. You know, I, I've done my creator-own work, a ton of that. Um, I look at things like Moonshadow, for instance, is one of the very best things I've ever done, which I'll plug the beautiful edition uh it came out from Dark Horse last year, which got us an Eisner nomination this year. Very nice. Um, you know, superheroes, uh, straight kind of psychologically driven superheroes. I've done the funny stuff with Giffen. I've done kids' fantasy like Abadazad and the Stardust Kid and Augusta Wind. So, you know, for me, it's just all about following the story where it goes. And, and I guess the more personal the story, uh, the more important it is to me. But, you know... Despite the fact that it sometimes seems that it's the creator-owned material that's the most personal, it's not always the case. Sometimes it's a Spider-Man story. You know, Craven's Last Hunt, in its way, 
was a profoundly personal story for me in, in a symbolic way, yeah. But in, or, or my run on Dr. Fate at D.C., which, although it was a mainstream D.C. character, I had the freedom to treat it as if it was a, uh, a creator-owned book and do with it whatever I wanted. And, and whenever I got the, get the opportunity to tell exactly the kinds of stories I want to tell and exactly the way I want to tell them, regardless of whether it's a, an established character or something I've created myself, that, that, those are the stories that I love the most and, and tend to cherish the most. And you mentioned Craven's Last Hunt. That's a story that, over the past few decades, has been highly lauded as one of the best Spider-Man stories of all time. And a lot of people out there, we have not seen a big-screen portrayal of the character of Craven. But yet, time and again, people always mention Craven's Last Hunt has to be a story that is adapted for the big screen. Uh, are you in agreement with that? Why not, is what I say. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on one level, it's a mercenary level, because if they do that, I will get a check, and that's a nice thing. Hell yeah. um, but the other level is, yeah, it's a cool story. I think it's a very cin- cinematic story, and I think it would make a great film. Uh, the problem I, I, I come up against with the current incarnation of Spider-Man is that he's just too young yeah. uh, to do that story. And um, you know, someone, I think it might have been on another podcast, suggested to me that the perfect way to do it is you bring back Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire for one movie. You know, the way they did the Joker, like it's one movie, not connected to the rest of the DC Universe, it's just standalone. And bring those guys back and do Craven's Last Hunt with a nice, mature Peter Parker um, um, and, and, and do it that way. And I think that would be great. And I think the other way to go is, you know, as someone who's written a bunch of these uh, DC animated movies, um, do it as an animated movie. This way it's not necessarily connected to anything else. It can stand on its own. And also you jump over the problem of that your lead actor is buried alive and hidden for a third of the film, you know. Um, in animation, you can get away with that. When you're paying an actor uh, $20 million to uh, be in every frame, um, it might not be as easy. And you, with, you know, you just mentioned the animated movies that you're involved with, like Superman, Red Sun, and the upcoming Deathstroke one. Yeah. What do you think is Marvel's apprehension with not doing animated films, like at least, you know, the uh, the direct-to-DVD kind of stuff, because that's where DC absolutely has the market cornered. Like, while the live-action films may not be up to snuff compared to Marvel's cinematic endeavors, they do, in fact, blow Marvel out of the water, for the most part, with those animated films. Yeah, well, D- you know, DC has been on the cutting edge of the animated stuff since, you know, the, the Batman series in the 80s. Um and they have just they've just kept it up, and they've had great people like you know Bruce Tim and Alan Burnett, now Jim Krieg, um, uh, you know so many so many great people, um, James Tucker, um, and people that really really um, understand these characters and really really love these characters. And I, like I think you know I wrote I wrote a bunch for Justice League Unlimited. I think that's comics, movies, however you want to look at it, it's one of the best versions of the Justice League ever done because they understood those characters. Absolutely. And they presented them in, in, in the perfect way. And, you know, I'm honestly not as familiar with, with Marvel animation because I haven't done much for them. I've, I've written uh, three episodes for the, most, for the current Spider-Man uh, series that's on now, Marvel Spider-Man. I had a great time doing that, worked with uh, great people on it. But so, but I'm not really. Uh, I know a lot more people involved with the DC animation than I do with the Marvel animation. So I don't know what their reluctance is. I, I you think to take a bunch of classic Marvel stories and turn them into animated films would be 
what a great thing to do, you know? What a great thing to do. And, and I, I say it every time this comes up. You know, Marvel, if you're out there, I'll write that Craven's Last Son animated movie in a heartbeat. Just give me a call. I'm there. And when you mentioned, by the way, all the different styles of writing that you're able to do, that's a sense of reinvention. And one of the things that you're responsible for a reinvention of was back, uh, I think, five-ish years ago with DC, with the reinvention of Scooby-Doo as a part of their Hanna-Barbera line where the Flintstones somehow became political commentary. We had a uh, dastardly and muttly uh, World War One story, just absolute bonkers stuff. And one of the stories was yourself and Keith Giffen reinventing Scooby-Doo. How did that come yeah. about? You know, uh, I, I always say when I work with Keith, because Keith and I have been working together on and off since, you know, we worked on Justice League back in the 80s, that I'll work with Keith on anything. So if, uh, my joke is always if they called us up and said, hey, you want to do Millie the Model? If it's with Keith, I'll do it. You know, same thing with Kevin McGuire. I'll work with him on anything. Um, and it was sort of that way with Scooby-Doo. And it was like, Keith called me up one day and said, well, they want us to do a, a new version of Scooby-Doo. And my first reaction was, what? <laughs> and my second reaction was, well, if it's with Keith, it's going to be fun. So let's go and let's do it. You know, Jim Lee had the, the basic concept, which was, what you know, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic kind of thing and the monsters are real. And we basically took that and ran with it and, um, and just did what, what we normally do, which is a mixture of, you know, we, we made sure that we wanted the horror in that book to be real and the humor to come out of the character interactions, which it usually does with our stuff anyway. And, you know, considering I went into it sort of like skeptical, by the end, it was such a great gig. And we, we, know we, we did it for three years. It was the last Hanna-Barbera book standing at D.C. Um, and we had a great time. And I think we actually did a good job with it. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to go to conventions back in the days when we were allowed to go to conventions <laughs> in, in the before time. And people that aren't necessarily comic book fans or, you know, maybe don't even know my work or Keith's work, but they love Scooby-Doo and they picked it up and they fell in love with the comic. So it brought in uh, a different audience, which was, which is always interesting. Uh, so we, we had a wonderful time with that book. It was, it was one of those gigs that start, started off with me scratching my head. And by the end I was in love with it. You know, it, for me to let go, like, God, I love writing scrappy do, you know, it's like when, how is that sentence coming out of my mouth? But it was true. You know, I just had a, so we just had a great time with that book. Tell us a little bit, James, about, I guess this was in the 90s, that uh, your autobiographical Brooklyn Dreams came out, how that came about and when it was out and how we can get it. Yeah, you, you asked if, um, you know, which stories uh, are prob- among my absolute favorites. And Brooklyn Dreams, depending on the day, is in the top three. Some days it's one, some days it's two, some days it's three. But it's always in the top three. And, and in some ways, I think if I really was forced to pick one thing and say that's, you know, they said, well, we're going to destroy everything else you ever wrote and we're going to leave one thing. Uh, depending on the day, it might be Brooklyn Dreams or it might be Moonshadow. It goes back and forth, but I tend to lean a little bit more toward Brooklyn Dreams. Um, how did it come about? Well, speaking of Moonshadow, it came about when I was doing Moonshadow with John J. Muth at Epic. And, uh, you know, Moonshadow was the series that really allowed me to kind of spread my wings and find my voice as a writer in a way I never had before, because I stepped outside of the Marvel Universe and just wrote as if I was writing a novel. And part of the story uh, was we had these, used to have these flashbacks to the main character's mother's life growing up in Brooklyn. You know, I called them my little Brooklyn flashbacks. And I thought as I was working on that, well, wouldn't it just be great to just do a story about what it was like growing up in Brooklyn, 
Um, and and um, I, I carried that. I actually pitched it to Epic originally, and then for some reason we never did it. And I held on to it, and then DC was launching uh, what was then called Piranha Press. It evolved into Paradox Press and pitched it there. Uh, they said, let's do it, and they found an extraordinary artist by the name of Glenn Barr. And it was one of those really, really rare things where I had, a, you know, you, as a writer in this medium, you have, you have a vision in your head of how you want this, these things to look. And I knew what I wanted Brooklyn Dreams to look like. And they pulled this artwork out of a drawer, drawer and said, what do you think of this guy? And it was exactly what I had in my head. <laughs> And that, that, you know, that doesn't happen very often. And so it was one of these beautiful collaborations where we just sort of mind-melded. And Glenn either gave me exactly what I was seeing in my head or he gave me something better. And, um, and it was, you know, it was one of the easiest things I ever wrote because these were stories about my life that I had been telling for years. At the same time, it was one of the scariest things I ever wrote because it was so intensely personal and, and revelatory, you know? So... Um, very proud of it. It's uh, the hard, the the print edition is 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 out of print right now. IDW has it right now, but it, you can still get it through Comicsology. You can get the digital version, and I hope we'll get a we'll get a print edition back uh, back soon because uh, I'd like to see that back out there. How but IDW it went from uh, you know Paradox Press, and then it was reprinted by, under the Vertigo imprint, and then about I don't know four or five years ago we took it to IDW and they put out a hardcover and. Uh, right now, it's just digital. So when it first came out, it was um, how many in the series, in the miniseries? Oh, it, when it first came out, it was, you know, if, if you remember Paradox Press, they were doing these interesting sort of, I guess they were like 90-page digests or something, you know? Oh, yeah. So they were they were digest size. They were really interesting formats. So we did four of those, and then they were collected together, mm-hmm. uh, finally under the Vertigo imprint, and then uh, as a soft cover. And then we took it over to IDW a few years ago, and we got our first hardcover out of it. Now, one of the other things is the relationship that you have with Keith Giffen and Kevin McGuire. How did all of that come about initially? It came about through the genius of Andy Helfer. And uh, Andy is the unsung hero of our Justice League, really. Uh, Andy, speaking of Brooklyn, we discovered you know, we didn't meet till we were both working at D.C., but it turns out that Andy and I grew up, like, across the street from each other. <laughs> we, did, we didn't know it. He was, like, maybe three years younger or something, or four years younger. Um, you know, and, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, like, your apartment house is your world. And if someone lives across the street in a different apartment house, you may never encounter them, you know. But it was an amazing thing that Andy and I discovered that we literally grew up across the street from each other. But Andy, aside from being just a brilliant writer in his own right, was one of the best editors ever to sit behind a desk at D.C. Um, and he... He put the team together. He put together a team that I don't think anybody else would have ever put together. I had been working on the previous incarnation of Justice League. Uh, Jerry Conway had been writing it, and he left the book, and they brought me in to sort of wrap up the Detroit League, and they gave me my orders and said, you got to kill off some characters and, and basically disassemble the Detroit Justice League. So I did that, and I thought, well, that's it. Uh, you know, it's my little, my little Justice League stint, and I'm done. And then Andy came back to me and said, well, you know, we're, we're doing this, this Justice League relaunch, and uh, Keith Giffen is plotting it. He was going to, originally Keith was going to write it himself, and then he realized uh, that he just, he didn't feel comfortable yet stepping solo into there, into that role. So they wanted someone to come in and do the dialogue. And uh, 
and they pulled me in. And at the beginning, I was like, well, Keith doesn't need me. Keith is brilliant. What the hell does he need me for? You know? And, uh, but then we just, we got into this rhythm and then, you know, you had Kevin to the mix. Kevin was an unknown at that point. He'd done almost nothing at that point. So Andy, you know, took a gamble putting me and Keith, who, if you looked at our work before then, had nothing in common, our work, you know, and Kevin, who was an untried artist and threw it all together put it in the blender and somehow came up with this chemistry that none of us expected. Uh, it was a surprise to all of us. And, and, uh, and the book took off. And it was one of the greatest gigs I've ever had. And as a result, you know, Keith and I continue to work together all through the years and, and with Kevin with every chance we get. And that run of Justice League holds up phenomenally well. We were talking off mic about it, and it's, it's one of those runs, and I've, I've said it to you every single time I run into it, you at a convention, I do the same to Keith, but I feel like Marvel ended up seeing this run and they thought to themselves, well, let's find a way to replicate the the dynamic of all of these characters and use it in what we do in our movies. And it's amazing how well these hold up, how phenomenal the dialogue is, the humor, the art, everything about it. I feel if it wasn't for this run, we would not have the Marvel Cinematic Universe the way it is today. So you think they can cut me in for ten percent? I hope so. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like my, my joke was when uh, Legends of Tomorrow came out, and they said that they were looking for the tone of our Justice League. And my my question was, do, do we get royalties for tone? <laughs> you know? But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Um, but yeah, no, I, I agree with you actually about the the the, the impact on those Marvel movies. I, I I see it there. I mean, remember the end of the first. Avengers movie when they're at the very last scene they're all just sitting in the restaurant together that you know that was a pure Justice League scene yeah. pure Justice um, but we stumbled into all that by accident there was no as Keith loves to say we had no plan you know it was all it was all we just stumbled along and 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 sort of found the voice of the book as we went and it just sort of happened and 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 it was really I it, it sounds funny but it was sort of effortless it just sort of happened, and you have we to... didn't set out. We didn't set out to say, "Ooh, let's do superheroes," but funny. It was just sort of, you know, Keith being Keith has a sense of humor, so that kind of showed up in his plots. So that when I would write the dialogue, I would build on that, and it gave me an opportunity to express that side of my personality. You know, the humor through the dialogue, and we would just kind of. I always liken it to a game of tennis. You know, Keith and I would just hit the ball back and forth, and I would build on what he did, he would build on what I did, and somehow between the two of us, we created something together that we maybe couldn't have done individually, probably couldn't have done individually, because we created a, a third voice, which is the voice that we have together. Um, and then we were lucky enough to have Kevin, who I don't think anybody in the history of comics has ever done better acting on the page than Kevin McGuire, you know, which was perfect for a book that was so character-driven and dialogue-driven. And every artist that came after him on that book, you know, owed him a debt because he set the visual template for that book. And when it comes to, you know, how you write the characters, you give each of them their own individual voice. And you find ways to teeter-totter between seriousness and comedic. And the most prime example of this is Batman because you have moments where he's this deathly serious figure, but then you end up having him, you know, do a callback to Blue Beetle's Star Trek line in, I believe, issue number two, because I just read that issue again. And it's, it's cool little things like that where you can take these characters that are known as this, only this. And 
I feel like that's a problem for some readers or writers that will just maintain the same style over and over and over for a character and not take risks. And you end up incorporating a humorous Batman, but it's not campy like Adam West. And it's not, you know, too try hard like the Justice League with Joss Whedon. It's it's its own thing, you know? You know, and you, well, you, the, the, I think the trick is to stay true to the essence of the character. You can bend them to the left, you can bend them to the right, you know, but you have to stay true to the essence. We never broke Batman. We just bent him a little bit, and and I think it stayed true to the character. He didn't make those little jokes very often. But my, what I, I think, looking back, what was in the back of my head the whole time I wrote Batman was, you know, you kept him being Batman, and he's surrounded by this sort of, you know, Three Stooges lunacy of these other characters, and he came off like he just was completely exasperated with all of them. But I think in his heart of hearts, he loved being there, and he loved being with these people uh, because it was such a contrast to what he normally had to deal with. Uh, so that there was always, if you, you know, if you could see behind the little whites of his eyes, I think there would have often been a twinkle in those eyes with Batman, even though he didn't like to let it out. But every once in a while, I would let a joke slip out through his lips. You know? And then they would all go, wait, wait. Was that a joke? Because it was always in such a way that no one was completely sure. You know? Yeah. Um, and and I, so I think that, that we, were, we were able to put that twinkle in his eye and yet stay true to who he was. And it's also the importance of having those moments when you, they can be few and far between where Batman cracks a joke. And if it's, if it's all the time, it's going to lose its impact. But when you yeah. drop that one, boom, you got it right in the spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And, of course, you know, you three ended up working together at Marvel on the 2005 Defenders run. How did that come about? Well, you know, it goes back before then, because what happened was, uh, you know, we we finished the gig on Justice League, and we were like, okay, that's done, that was a gig, move on. You know, we're all freelancers, we all move on to the next gig. We were not aware, honest to God, that we had done anything special. We knew the book was popular, but we didn't, you know, we didn't think... We certainly didn't think we'd be having conversations about it 30 years later. Never crossed anybody's mind like, oh, what a great thing we've done. We've created a deathless series that will live on forever, you know? Hmm. No, it was, it was a fun gig, but it was just another gig, and we moved on. And then like 10 years later, uh, DC brought us back together for formerly known as the Justice League. And it was working on that. I always say it shows how stupid we all are. It, working on that was when we all went, ooh, this is good what we do together. We need to keep doing this, you know? And it took, it was after that 10-year break that we finally figured out that the three of us really had something special together, and which I say, you know, it really does prove what, what, what three idiots we are, that it took us that long to figure it out. And so we did formerly known as the Justice League, and then we did I Can't Believe It's Not the Justice League. And I think at that point, after that, Keith was doing some work for Marvel, so he just pitched them on this, Defender's idea, it was the same, you know, it's the same way it always goes. Keith calls me up and goes, you know, you want to do this? Sure. If it's with you, Keith, fine. You know, it's with Kevin, all the better. Let's go. So, Jim, does that make you Mo, Larry, or Curly? (sighs) That's a really good question. Shemp is also an option, just an FYI. (laughs) (laughs) As long as I'm not Curly Joe Dorita, right? You know, okay. Anyway, so yeah, so we just, you know, it was another one that we just kind of stumbled into. We had a really good time with that. And it's interesting because I was thinking about that Defender series the other day. I, and what's interesting, too, is that both Keith and I separately had runs on the Defenders. He drew the Defenders, I think, that when he first started in the business back in the late 70s or mid-70s. 
And I wrote the Defenders for three years when I first started at Marvel in the 80s. Uh, and so, you know, we came back together and did a Defenders that was nothing like anything that either of us had, had ever done before. And uh, I think the difference between the Defenders and the Justice League, and this is what I was thinking about the other day, and why maybe on one level, even though I think it was a really fun series, it wasn't quite as much fun for me, is that all the Justice League characters, even when they were, like, screaming at each other, you knew that deep down all those guys loved each other, just kind of what I was saying about Batman before. Whereas the way the Defenders, we had it set up, those three guys really didn't like each other. You know, Doctor Strange, uh, Namor, and the Hulk, there was... Their conflict was really from three guys that did not like each other. So um, it, was, it was a different context. And I think had we continued with it, we probably would have softened that a little bit. But I think that was one of the major differences between the two. You knew in Justice League, no matter what was going on, they loved each other. Tell us, uh, J.M., a little bit, if you can, if uh, it's a couple of other names I want to throw at you. And if it's too close to the vest, you don't want to, I get it. But uh, Michael Ellis and Wally Lumbago. <laughs> Is that a chiropractor? Uh, I don't see MD after the name, so. <laughs> so I'll start with Wally. Okay. I'll try to keep these stories brief. Um, so Wally Lumbago, when I, and this is like when I just started at Marvel. Uh, I mean, really, you know, I mean, like one of the first things I ever did there, maybe the, I'd done a couple of fill-ins and then, and then uh, uh, Louis Simonson, who was Louise Jones in those days, called me up to ask me to do what I do want to do, an issue of Star Wars. So, again, early days, you're a freelancer. Uh, it doesn't matter what they're asking you to do. You say, yes, absolutely, yes. I will do that. So I, I did this, um, not that I, you know, I have nothing against Star Wars, but I am not a Star Wars maniac in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I came up with what I thought was a really interesting story, and it had to do with... Uh, Someone who'd been part of the, you know, the rebellion, the Rebel Alliance, or whatever the whatever it's called. Forgive my lack of Star Wars uh, uh, nomenclature. Uh, and and he had turned his back on on violence, and he had this whole colony of people. They lived in a sort of other dimensional space, away from the war, away from the Empire. And uh, through long story short, Lando Calrissian ends up going through this rift, finds them. The Empire follows them through, and at the end, this this former rebel fighter and his followers decide they're not going to fight. They're pacifists, and they would rather die for a dream of peace than die, than die fighting, which is, a, I think, a, an important and powerful statement, uh, you know, especially in a medium that depends so much on violence to solve problems. So I wrote the story. You know, Louise approved it. All was well and good. And then we got back notes from the Lucasfilm people, and they basically said, you can't do that. If this guy doesn't fight and, and dies for his dream of peace, um, it makes our characters look bad. That was the note. makes our characters look bad. So they had to rewrite the ending. And I, somewhere I have uh, both versions, the original version. Because it turned out, I didn't find out for 20 years, that the original version was published in England. came out just the way I wrote it. Um, but the American version had this entire page rewritten. And one of the lines was something to the effect of, you know, he, dry, he died for his dream of peace. But he was wrong, and they really hit that over the head. He was really wrong, and what he did was not a good thing. You know, you got to fight, basically. So, uh, and I look back now, and I think, wow, I had a lot of balls to do this. I was just starting out. I could have, you know, burned some bridges. And I said, you know what? Take my take my name off that story because my son had just been born, and I named this new character Cody after my son. Uh, Cody's sunchild was actually the name of the character. So I wrote this story for my son, and they completely corrupted 
what the intention of the story was. So I said, take my name off it. And I, I had this goofy name that I used to use with my friends, goofing around, Wally Lumbago. And that's the name I put on the story. And God bless uh, Louise for letting me put that name on the story. And that's how Wally Lumbago came to be. And no one at Marvel held it against me. And uh, it all worked out fine in the end. And if I learned nothing else from that little anecdote, it was Louise's former name, Jones. That's right. Wait, but you never knew that? That's the first time I actually heard somebody say it. So that's that's kind of cool. Uh, as as well, of course, and and Michael Ellis, the other pseudonym. I've heard the name. Okay, Michael before. Ellis came about because um, I was writing Captain America. I'd been writing Captain America for like three years at that point, and I was working on a massive arc, uh, a year long arc that the whole point was going to come. It was supposed to be Captain America's final final battle with the Red Skull, where just about everybody Steve Rogers, you know, was close to and loved uh, was what came close to death because of this battle with the Skull, and at the end. Uh, the skull dies, and and what I decided I wanted to do with Captain America, and what I pitched to Mark Grunewald, another great editor and amazing person who died way too young, um, was this idea that 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 Captain America would say, you know, after forty, at this point it was like he'd been doing this for like forty years since World War II, and he had had it with violence, and he decided he had to find another way, he had to find another way to be, and so he he went off on this quest to to, to do just that. Uh, to to disavow violence and see if he could make change in the world in a different way, which in 1983 would have been a pretty radical storyline, I think, uh, in a really good way. Uh, Mark Grunewald approved the story, and uh, I started to put together my ideas for for what was coming up. It was going to climax, believe it or not, in the assassination of Captain America, something that happened, what, 15, 20 years after that. Mm. And then... I was going back and forth with who the new Captain America was going to be. I thought at one point I was going to do Sam Wilson, and then I, I had a Native American character called Black Crow that I created. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if the next Captain America is one of the first Americans, is Native American? So that's what I landed on, was I was going to end up, when it was all over, with the Native American Captain America. So I, as I said, I pitched all this to Grunewald. Off we went. And then word came down from Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief at the time, that he did not like this storyline. He didn't think Captain America would ever do this or act this way. And um, and we were this was all uh, kicking off in a double-sized Captain America 300. And well, let me back up and just say, that was Jim's job, and it was his right. You know, I was annoyed and pissed off at the time. But, you know, in retrospect, he's just doing his job. He has his, He's the custodian of the Marvel Universe, and it's his vision that has to guide it. So I hold nothing against Jim for what he did. But at the time... It was very upsetting. And so I had this double-sized issue, which I plotted and was starting to be drawn. And they, uh, because of the changes they made and, uh, you know, in killing the whole new storyline, they cut it in half and did some rewriting on it. So by the time it was done, once again, it was not the story as I intended it. So I took my name off it, and it was Grunewald who came up with the name Michael Ellis because apparently, which I, I don't there was an old Monty Python skit where they keep paging someone named Michael Ellis, and he never shows up. He's the man. He's basically the man who isn't there, you know? So I thought that was a great idea. So uh, I got credit for the plot, and Michael Ellis took credit for the script on that one. I like that. Yeah. Very good. Now, going back over to that Justice League run, one of the most memorable aspects of it was a relationship between two characters that has given them nicknames, led to you know, tandem cosplay all the time. I'm, of course, talking about Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. And 
they're the Laurel and Hardy of the DC universe. And I, again, I just have to ask, how did that happen? And I'll give you the same answer I gave you before about the whole run completely by accident. Mm. <clears throat> you know, nobody, we didn't, Keith and I never sat down and said, let's take these two characters and make them sort of the, as you said, the Laurel and Hardy of the team, the heart and soul of the team. It doesn't work that way. Even when you try to make it work that way, it doesn't work that way. What happens is, you know, Keith creates scenes in the plot, and I get the characters talking to each other. And it just so happened that we had some scenes with Beetle and Booster together. And, and the way it works for me with the dialogue is, you know, I have to, in essence, become these guys. So they start talking to each other, and after a while, I feel like it's not even me writing it. It's like they're talking to each other, and I'm writing down their dialogue that they're saying to each other that has nothing to do with me. So these two guys hit it off the same way that in, in, in real life uh, two people meet and hit it off. And we had no control over that. The characters did it. And so we saw how the characters played off each other, and, and we just started adding more of that. And before we knew it, they became the center of the team and the heart and soul of the team, but not through any intention of ours. It was through the intention of the characters themselves. They just kind of took off and took over. And the reaction that the characters have gotten over the years, it's surprising that they have not at least done maybe a television series with the two, like a buddy cop kind of show, or... No, I'm stunned. I'm, I'm, I'm stunned that there's never been a blue and gold monthly series, for God's sake. You know, I mean, we, we, I remember we used to talk about it back in the, in the 80s, and there was... We almost did it, and then something happened, and we didn't. And even as recently as when Keith and I were working on uh, the Booster Gold uh, book, maybe five years ago, six years ago, um, or maybe it was when we were working on Justice League, Justice League 3000, because we had, we brought Beetle and Booster into that book. And as Justice League 3000 was wrapping up, I came up with what I thought was a great pitch for a blue and gold book that would spin right out of Justice League 3000. And I pitched it to DC, and they kind of shrugged and said, nah. So I don't know. You know, as a freelancer, I'm often the last one to know, and I, I'm not privy to the decision-making process, you know. So um, I have no idea whether I've never done it. It seems like a no-brainer to me. And it's one um, of those, it's the underrated cult favorite characters. Like, you know, DC could put the effort marketing them just a little bit more. They could be DC's answer to a character such as Deadpool, you know, where it's like yeah. the, the underground favorite you know, made it mainstream. Yeah, I agree. And I know there was a, a Booster Gold movie in development a couple of years ago because I know the the guy that was working on the screenplay, and I haven't heard a word about it. So I don't, and I don't know whether Blue Beetle was going to be um, part of that or not. So yeah, but I would think it's really it's a it's a no brainer, you know, to put those two together and and have you have a great franchise, whether it's for TV, uh, for movies, or for God's sake, just put them in their own monthly comic. A couple more things, Jam, that I have. And uh, one is in your uh, bio that's listed on Wikipedia, there's a photo, and it's from the 2018 Aetna, not the insurance company, take off the first A, comics convention in Italy. And I thought, oh, how is it? How often did you ever get to go to international comic shows? And, and what are those like? Yeah, you know, that's something that it feels like in recent years more and more uh, um, is cropping up, I think, as as our pop culture takes over the world. Not that there haven't been, you know, international comic book conventions before, but there's a lot more of them, and I've seen a lot more invitations. So I 
you know, that trip to Italy, uh, the convention and the rest of the trips, one of the greatest trips I've ever had, because it's wonderful. They, they bring me, they pay for my wife, they put us up, you know. Uh, so you get to go to another country, then you take some time and you travel around. And, and for me, having uh, Italian roots on my father's side, it gave me an opportunity to go to the little village in Calabria where my grandparents came from and, and, and then go up and visit with friends in Rome. It was just a fantastic trip. Mm. But we've, we've had a chance to go to, you know, uh, Italy and Greece and and Mexico and, and Spain, and it's a fantastic thing. Uh, and that's something now that, of course, is lost uh, now that uh, we're in shutdown world here. But, uh, you know, I'm very grateful. You know, the, the, being in comics just op- has opened the door for so many opportunities for me, uh, you know, in, in TV and film and in, in writing books and so many things. And then, you know, these conventions which offer you international travel and a chance along with that, to meet these people in other countries, which is really always astonishing to me. Because I always say, you know, we're all like locked away in our little offices and our little rooms here, playing with our imaginary friends. Sometimes we even forget there's an audience out there. You're just involved with the characters. Or then you go to conventions in the States, and you know there are people here. But suddenly you show up in another country, in Italy or in Greece or in Spain, and someone says, you know, I've been reading your work my entire life, and, and, and these stories mean so much to me. What an incredible experience. You know, I never take that for granted. That's really, really so sweet and so powerful and so profound. And so uh, along with just the travel, the chance to meet these fans in other countries. And what I also notice is when you go to another country, you know, chances are you're not going to be popping back, you know, every couple of years. It may be the only chance that you're going to have to go there. And the fans know it may be their only chance that you're coming there. So they just, they greet you with such an open heart such an open heart that it's it's almost uh, overwhelming sometimes so sweet so it's been it's been really been a great experience doing these international conventions so then how many times have you been to like what countries and how often have you done that you know i'd say most of them have been in the past 5 years mm-hmm. you know so you know maybe maybe the half a where were we last we were in scotland uh, last fall was the most recent one so maybe you know half a dozen countries in the in the past five five years or so you know, um, so it's, it's it's been it's been fantastic it's really been fantastic and once the once the COVID cloud lifts we look forward to doing it again because we just keep getting invitations I know I've been invited a number of times to go to South America to a variety of countries down there which I would love to do uh, I had a chance to go to India a couple of years ago which unfortunately I didn't get to take. Um, but I would love that opportunity again because I, that's a country I've traveled to on my own a number of times, and I would love to go back. Um, so it's just it's it's just a great thing. It's really a great thing. Is there anything that uh, you'd like to write about that you haven't done before? Oh, always, mm-hmm. always. I'm I'm sitting around to, you know, putting together ideas because I've got like just off the top of my head four different creator-owned books that I want to do. You know. Um, in terms of the 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 established characters, um, you know, I, I'm lucky in that I've had a chance to write so many of them. Uh, but the fun is, you know, then one day the phone rings and someone says, "Do you want to do such and such?" You know, oh, I hadn't thought about that, and off you go. So so, um, and then it's the same thing with with the animated projects. You know, uh, several times it's happened that they've called me up about characters that I either wasn't overly familiar with or I didn't think were like particular favorites of mine. Uh, but, you know, you take the gig, and then you dive in deep, and you fall in love with these characters, and you're off again. And that's, you know, that's the magic of, of what we do. Once you engage with the story, uh, once you engage with the character, that whole world opens up. 
and and you're it's like you step into another dimension and it's it's uh I feel so so grateful and lucky that I've been able to do this uh to make my living doing this my entire adult life um and and just to play in the world's story it's a fantastic thing so uh you know it so it's not like oh I really would like to do this or I'd like to do that but there's always the next story over the horizon it just is and I wake up in the morning sometimes oh, there's an idea. This is a great story. I better go write this down, you know. And then sometimes you get to do that story uh, right right away. You get pitch it and you sell it. And I've had stories that I've had to wait literally decades before uh, before the story could get out into the world. But those stories do get out into the world, and that's the fun playing in those imaginary universes and then trying to get them out into the world any way you can. How about a story of let's say you as a rock musician? Because that was I think one of your early aspirations. Yeah, I played in bands for years. I'm still a musician. I still write songs and play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I have I have not really um, explored the music world uh, in any of my stories, and uh, that would be a fun and interesting thing to do. I had an idea a few years back that, that if, you know, if if I poke into my computer, I'll find files and folders with all these ideas. And sometimes you write it down, and it's a it's a few lines, or it's or it's ten pages. And sometimes you forget about it for five years, and you go back and you look at it, and you go. Oh, that was a cool idea. I better do something with that. And it's kind of like the shoemaker and the elves. You know that story? It's like when you wrote it so long ago that you feel like you didn't even re- write it. That someone just left it there for you magically on your computer. You know what a cool idea? I wonder who wrote this. And off you go again. So um, that's that's again that's the fun of what we do. It's it's kind of magical. It's kind of magical. It's not easy being a freelancer because being a freelancer has its no matter how successful you are. It's about ups and downs, you know, and there are years where you're really booming and, and work is coming at you from every direction, and then there are years where, hey, where'd all the work go? Mm-hmm. And there's never any rhyme or reason to it, and then all of a sudden all the work is back. And So it's kind of like a roller coaster being a freelancer. But the joy of creating these stories is, and that is why we keep doing it, all of us, um, because it's, it, it is. It's, it's a magical thing. It's like you're stepping into another dimension, as I said before, and just getting lost with these characters in these other worlds. And I, I'm so grateful that I've had the career that I've had and continue to have. And throughout your career, a lot of the characters and storylines have been adapted into other mediums. And what is that like the first time for yourself when that had happened? You know, it's, 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 it's a nice thing on, on two levels. <laughs> it's a nice thing because it's nice to see your ideas pop up in these other media. And, and, and then it's a nice thing because when they use your characters, they send you a check. So it's, you know, it works on both levels. So it's gratifying on a creative level, and it's a gratifying because, hey, guess what? We can pay the mortgage this month. That's fantastic. Um, and then I've also had the experience on the other end of it, you know, through these animated movies of adapting other people's stories, which is always an interesting thing to do. And it's, uh, uh, it, it really is it's, it's an illuminating experience, uh, taking something from one medium and transferring it in, into another, as I you know, did with uh, Superman Red Sun recently, to take a, a story that is that popular and that revered and, and translate it into uh, an 80- or 90-minute animated film. It's a very, very challenging process, but a very, very gratifying one, too. Yeah, you mentioned Superman Red Sun. I did see that in your uh, email, and I thought, well, wait a minute. That title sounds like it's not all that recent, but be- did it make it to this other medium recently? 2003. Oh, it, o- yeah, it only came out like last March, the movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the t- and, and, you know, Mark, Mark, Mark uh, Moss' story is, is really uh, a, a classic. 
and uh, it was uh, I was uh, honored that that they asked me to adapt it, and it turned out great. It really turned out great. But you know, I've done that with a few things uh, you know, along the way. When I did Constantine, City of Demons, uh, that was uh, that was an adap- a very loose adaptation of a Mike Carey, a Leonardo Manco uh, graphic novel. Um, and it's it's it. And when we did uh, Batman versus Robin, we we dipped into the Court of Owls storyline. But again. It's an adaptation, so you sort of use that as your foundation, and then you you spin that off, and you sort of build a whole new building on top of that foundation, and that's the fun of doing these adaptations. And you hope that you stay. We talked about before about the essence of characters, like you can bend Batman left to right, but you want to stay true to the essence of who Batman is. Well, with these adaptations, you can bend the story uh, left and right and build you know new rooms on that structure, but you still have to be true to the essence of the story. You can change a hundred details, that doesn't matter, but you have to remain true to the essence of that story, and that's always the challenge. And in regards to, you just mentioned uh, Batman versus Robin, with the whole Court of Owls storyline, you know, you're on the convention scene, and that's, you know, you run into people like Scott Snyder. Did he give feedback in regards to that? You know, no, no. Uh, Um... You know, with any of these things, it's interesting because I get a call. Usually, I get a call from Warner Brothers. You know, they're the ones who deal with you know what stories are going to be adapted, and whether they talk to any of the creators or not, I don't know. You know, so it was just like recently, I did a, a short that showed up on, I think it was the Wonder Woman uh, Bloodlines movie that came out. Was it called Bloodlines? Came out a few months ago. But we did an, uh, a twenty-minute short with Neil Gaiman's death character. First time that the death character has ever been adapted for any other medium. And um, um, I, don't, I found it later. I don't know if Neil even knew that it was being done. I just assumed that, that they spoke to him about it. Um, so I hope that Neil was pleased with what we did because we, we treated it with great respect and great care. Um, but I don't usually talk, no, I don't usually talk to the creators of the original stories about it. Uh, I'm, I'm working on those stories with, you know, Bruce Tim or Jim Krieg or whoever is the producer on that particular project, and we work out the adaptation and, and the story between us. And also, in addition, you know, with all of that coming along, you currently, it's going to be coming out in August, so around the time this episode drops, Deathstroke, Knights, and Dragons, the movie. How did that come yeah. out? That was, you know, the way, it's, it's so funny, I keep coming up, you, you like, you, here's a great story, and it's not really a great story, it's like the phone rings, and they say, hey, you want to write this Deathstroke thing? Yeah, I'll do it, off we go, you know? <laughs> it's as simple as that. And uh, this was for CW... See, I've done a couple of projects for CW Seed, which, if people don't know it, CW Seed is the streaming platform uh, of the CW Network. Uh, it's a separate platform from the CW, uh, and they've done a bunch of original DC animated properties. I did Constantine City of Demons for that. And so what, what we do is I write a full-length movie, which is what I did with Deathstroke, Knights and Dragons, and then they will break that down, uh, edit it, and break it down into shorter episodes, for CW Seed. Now, what you see on CW Seed will only be part of the story. And then they take the entire thing and release it for streaming and DVD as a full-length movie. So earlier in the year, they released maybe the first half-dozen shortened episodes of Deathstroke on CW Seed. But now what's coming up in August is the, death, the full-length Deathstroke movie for Blu-ray, or you'll be able to go to you know Google Play or Amazon and, and, and watch it there. And that was another case where... You know, I was aware of Deathstroke, but I was not, you know, deep into the mythology. I didn't know the character very well. So the, so the job is then to sit down and get to know that character very well. 
And you may think going in, well, I don't know. I'm not going to resonate with this character. I don't know. It's my kind of thing. And suddenly you dig in and something clicks. And that's what happened with Deathstroke. I found all these great elements in his history. And this one wasn't an adaptation of any particular story. I took a few elements from a few different stories and then created a whole new story out of it. And it's really, really ultimately a story about family. Because if you look through all the Deathstroke families, there's all this great dynamic and incredible dysfunction with him, with his ex-wife, with his kids. So it's really, it, it's, it's a big uh, superhero story that I always I joke and I say, it's like, it's the worst divorce story in history, you know? Um, but it's also a big globe-spanning adventure and sort of a, a James Bondian uh, international adventure. So it's got all the, emotional, uh, all the emotional meat going on between the family, and yet it's a great adventure, too. So it, was a, it turned out to be a great project, and I had a wonderful time uh, working on it, and I'm very excited that the movie will be out, which I think it's out for streaming like August, somewhere around August 3rd, and then it will be out on Blu-ray, I believe, August 18th. Just going back to one other point you mentioned, Jam, and that was looking and finding your old files and notes and ideas that you hadn't uh, yeah. done anything with, and going, "Oh wow, you know what?" I, but I'm wondering how often have you gone back and seen a few uh, a few words of an idea and gone, "What the heck is this? I have no. What does this mean? I don't know." <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever had that experience where I was completely baffled. You know, yeah. Um, but but sometimes it really is. It's just like. It's like three lines. It's 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 not even an idea. It's a notion, you know. And and some of them, it's like oh, this doesn't interest me now. And other times, you see those three lines, and you go, "Just happened this week. I looked through something that, and I, it was dated like I don't know, two thousand and three or something. And I have a feeling the original idea was before that. And it was just a few lines. And I thought, well, that's really a cool idea. What can I do with that? Yeah. And that you know that gets the unconscious brewing, and then. Uh, Sometimes that means a whole story pops out, and sometimes it means it just goes back in the file. You know, you, I, I, I'm sometimes the last one to know which of those ideas are going to turn into something and which of them are just going to kind of vanish into the mists. Well, just speaking for myself, I'm very happy we got to talk to you. I had the privilege of meeting you a couple of places, I think possibly East Coast, maybe up in Albany, but uh, and I think I got a couple autographs as well, which is wonderful, and I just... So there's so many things you've done, and I just didn't realize the scope of that. And uh, I thank you for all that you have done. Your signature penmanship is a delight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. It's in a hardcover book. That's right. Of, uh, one of the Marvel uh, Spider-Man or something like that. That's right, for sure. That's great. Yeah. Well, Thanos, it's always a pleasure to talk about this stuff and, 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 and to get into the process a little bit with people. You know, Like I said, we spend a lot of time alone in a room with our imaginary friends, so it's nice to talk to real people. That is presupposing that you are real people, and this isn't happening in my imagination. Check the box. It says I am not a robot. Okay. I'm not fake. I'm predetermined. Save the robot. I just want to say a couple of things before I go. Also coming out in August from IDW, I have uh, a Star Trek story. It's a Mirror Universe Star Trek story called Hell's Mirror, and it's, it's the original con story, but taking place in the Mirror Universe, so twisted and turned in a lot of surprising ways. And I've only done one Star Trek story in my life. It was when I first started Marvel back in the early 80s. So this is the first time in all these years that I got to do a Star Trek story. And it's Kirk and Spock and Khan. So I'm happy as a clam uh, working on that one. And that'll be out in August as well. And I also want to mention that I do periodic writing workshops um, called Imagination 101. And um, now, obviously, because of COVID, I'm not having the workshops in person but I am in talks right now to bring the workshop online, so I'm hoping that by the fall 
um, we will we will have this workshop up and running online. And if anyone's interested in that, they can just go to my website, which is jmdmateus.com, and look in the workshop section, and there will be information about that there. Real quick, uh, rewinding back over to Star Trek, myself, I I was always a lifelong Star Wars fan, and mm-hmm. there was always that element of, well, I, I, I can only like one, I can't like the other. And then, you know, years later, I ended up discovering Star Trek and falling in love with it. And one of the things I've also, I'm watching it, um, TOS and TNG concurrently. And it's kind of cool to, you know, watch like an episode of, uh, TNG. They'll reference something from TOS. And by the way, for the, for the non-cool kids out there, TOS means the original series and TNG means the next generation. So, but just, you know, seeing like elements of, uh, the original series, pop up in one and then you watch like five or so episodes later in the original and it'll, you know, show like the original source of that reference from the other show. Right. And right. It, and you know, if you watch the first season of, of next generation before they really found their own voice, it was even sort of directed the way the old show was directed. You know, there was a, the style was much more locked into the style of the original series. And then as they went along, they kind of found their own tone and their own voice and, and, and became the great show that it became. But in the beginning, it was it was really interesting, as because they, they weren't. You could see that they weren't quite sure how to do this. And you know, if you look at the old show, and you'll see what a Star Trek nerd I am. Very often, the, as they're cutting to commercial, they end up with a close up on someone's face as oh, you know Kirk reacts in wonder or whatever. And then watch the first season of Next Generation. There's a lot of that going on too. You know, before they cut to commercial, and it's it's it's. So in a way, it really it really becomes a continuation and then an evolution of the original series. And those two really are my favorite out of all the Star Treks that have been done. Is uh, I'm hardcore original series, and I have a great love for the Next Generation as well. I'm going to put you on the spot right now. You can only pick five. Make your yeah. dream Enterprise team involving any era of Star Trek. Captain first. Wow. Oh, Captain Kirk. Oh, without without a doubt. Um. Can we have Spock and Data together on the same ship? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I still have to pick McCoy for the Doctor. So where are we now? We're at four? Correct. Yep. Uh, Worf. I would love to see interactions between Spock and Worf, and especially Kirk and Worf. Yes. Yeah, that would be great. Well, that's that's something IUW should do. And have they ever done a mashup like that? They did one fairly recently where it was like it, it was almost like Secret Wars, where they had all of the captains uh, competing against each other in teams. Like they did their own mashup teams. Like you, I believe they did in there a uh, Worf and uh, Kirk mashup at least. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know about that. Uh, I'll have to I'll have to seek that out. And the only era that didn't get included was uh, the current one that's going on on uh, CBS Unlimited that, you know, all... Uh, Discovery. Yeah, Discovery. Yeah. So yeah. there was that. It was... But just seeing all those teams together, it, it's cool to watch the interactions. And again, a level of how writing can impact things, how can these different personalities conflict with each other? And again, Justice League... There is that 100%. You have, you know, a Guy Gardner interacting with the Captain Whitebread of Captain Marvel. Right. And just right. Like all these elements interacting with each other. It's magic. You know, uh-oh. <laughs> wow. See, I was going with and it's I a kind of magic. Reference. That's okay. Yeah, it took me a little bit too, but I was thinking more it's a kind of magic from Queen, which was probably from before. But anyway. It's what we do with music. Why JM and why... 
no other, <laughs> n- not just John Mark. Like I see, it's you know birth name and what well, you just want to make it easier, quicker to remember. Yeah, or? you know, uh, you know, with, without getting too too deeply into the dysfunction in my family, autographs. Stuff, know. Um, you know, my my growing up until a certain age, I, I was told that my first name was Mark and my middle name was John, which wasn't true. <laughs> if you look at my birth certificate, my first name is John, my middle name is Mark. Uh, my father, being Italian, wanted me to name me John after my uncle, uh, his uncle John, and my mother, uh, who was Jewish, thought John was too Christian a name, so they just called me Mark until one day my father couldn't take it anymore and just told me, no, your name is John. So I always had this issue with like these, these two names warring in my head, like, who am I? What's going on here? So long story, long story short, when I, when, I started to, uh, when I started to write, I was uh, professionally, I was like, well, how do I do this, you know? Because uh, I'm not just Mark, and I'm, but I'm not really, you know, John, when someone calls and asks for John, you know, it's like a, a phone solicitor or the government or something, you know? So well, uh, I figured, you know, J.M., J.M. Barry, you know, all these, all these authors that have used, used their initials. I thought J.D. Salinger, one of my favorite writers, so I said, oh, I'm going to go for the initials. And it felt right, and that, that, was, that was where that all started. But all it really did was add a third name. So now I'm John, and I'm Mark, and I'm J.M., so there you go. Okay, so depending on what day it is. <laughs> exactly, and who I'm talking to. <laughs> well, and I don't know if you have any siblings, but my brother and I have each of our first names as our middle name. So I'm technically Edward John, and he's John Edward. Yeah, Which... I, I, you know, over the years I run into, it's like we're a secret club, you know, the people who, uh, who are called by their middle name. You know, Paul McCartney. His name is James Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's another one who just go, goes by his middle name. So we're a very special secret club. <laughs> Not so secret now. Do you guys have yeah. rings? Rings. <laughs> like the Mandarin. Yeah. We have a secret oath. We have hooded robes. It's a whole thing, yeah. I like that. I can't be in this club, unfortunately. That's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> Next step, you know, Tisha above. I don't know. A what? It's a word, a thing I heard a long time ago, and it stays with me once in a while. I'm just going to tisk you for that right now. All right. All right, so, JM, first off, thank you for doing the program today. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. And before we go, how can people get a hold of you on them, their social medias? Uh, Twitter, at JMD Mateus. Same thing with uh, with Facebook. And then I have my uh, my website, jmdmateus.com. And uh, and that's it. No Instagram, nothing else. I can't I can't do anymore. <laughs> but I have to say before that I really do enjoy it. One of the great things about social media is that it allows for wonderful interaction with the people that read and appreciate my work. And uh, and it's a great thing. It's a really great thing. You know, in the old days, it used to be you'd you know you write as a fan, you'd write letters to the comics or whatever, and hope that somebody you know that created the book that you loved read it. And now it's like the wall between creator and audience is just like virtually gone and we can communicate with each other easily and effortlessly and it's a really it's a really sweet thing and i enjoy and appreciate it i enjoy your positive stance about that because there are so many out there that have such a negative disposition about you know the ability of fan interaction because yeah there can be you know some bad eggs but for the most part it does lead to these great kind of moments yeah and that's that's what honestly that's what i found and i i for me personally i i think if you put out positive stuff that's what you get back. And uh, I would say 98% of my interactions on social media, if not 99%, are pretty positive. 
And so every once in a while, some weirdo shows up. So you mute him. What's the big deal? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't see I don't see the value in engaging. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. I don't see, I don't see the value in feeding the negativity and getting lost in that loop. Um, so uh, so yeah, it's it's for me. It's been delightful, and I really really appreciate it. Thank you again, JM. You do appreciate, it. and that's a great positive outlook to have, and that you've done and continue to do. Great. Well, thank you guys. It was good to talk to you. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jim DeMatteis. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! And now, Obsessed with Marvel. J.M. DeMatteis version. That's right. 2020. Question number 123. Well, that's very easy to read. It's a Jackson 5 song. Okay. And it reads... That's ABC. Easy as 123. Sorry, Gloria Stefan. I am corrected. Question 123. Which writers co-created Ultimate Fantastic Four with artist Adam Kubert? This could be an easy one. Oh, I know this one. And the choices are Mark Millar and Warren Ellis, Warren Ellis and Grant Morrison, Grant Morrison and Brian K. Vaughan, or Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Millar? I'll go with Mark Millar and Warren Ellis. Yeah, that's the one. I have no choice but to go along because I have no clue. Letter A... No, it says well, the answer is Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Millar. Well, we were wrong. <laughs> well, I knew Mark Millar was right anyway. Okay. Yeah, same. Because he did the... Uh, That's just a tough... I don't know, for me, anyway. He did, like, the first uh, few issues, because I know he was involved with that and Ultimate X-Men during the time. And Ultimate is where I've definitely drawn the line in any collecting of... They're good. You stuff. should read them. Yes, exactly. That's why the collection is thousands upon thousands then upon thousands some of... out! To be... <laughs> How dare you? I would reach over and smack you upside the... Oh, you question, don't need those new universes. Question number 1111, or 1111, or... Make a okay. wish. To whom is Black Tom Cassidy related? I know this one. All right, is it Siren, the Banshee, both A and B, or the Juggernaut? Who is Black Tom Cassidy related to? Siren, the Banshee, both A and B, Siren and Banshee, or the Juggernaut? Well, I don't think it's the Juggernaut, because isn't the Juggernaut related to Professor X? Yes. So that's out. I'll say Banshee. I go with choice C, because it's mentioning both, because Siren is, uh, what's his name's daughter? Uh, Banshee's daughter. There you oh, go. So that would, to me, yeah. If, yeah that saying, be it. I was going to say, I think let her see myself. So that is correct. Okay, one for two. Or one of two, or something like that. All right, computer needs time to think. What do I win? What did we say? Prize? I'm sorry, you, Adulation? you, you mistaken this for a different show. Cash prize. I'm almost positive. Cash prize. JM. That's what me. Just money. That's what JM stands for. No nose or nose nose. You touch your nose. The one that doesn't touch their nose gives uh, JM money. Guess what, Eddie? You give him money now because I'm touching my nose. Nobody can see that. Okay, you're not, you're not just touching your nose, buddy. Let me tell you what. All How right. dare you, sir? Question number 654. Who draws Petey, The Adventures of Peter Parker, as a young boy? We did this question before. What? Yeah. Uh, well, we're doing it now. <laughs> Has JM done it before? I've, no. I've never so, even heard of it, so I, I have don't know no I, answer for you. Well, here's your choices. Uh, is it John <laughs> Romita Sr.? Is it Fred Hembeck? Is it June Brigman? Or Ron Friends, who draws Petey, The Adventures of Peter Parker, as a young boy? John Romita Sr., Fred Hembuck, June Brigman, or Ron Friends? 
Do, 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 so was this something that was done like back in the 80s? You I'm know assuming. What? Yeah, I don't even recall. Given by the choices. I'm thinking of something that was done recently, but given the choices there, yeah. it seems like it's an 80s thing. It seems and like I'm Ron Friends. i take a stab in the dark and say Fred Hembeck. Hembeck is a good choice for that, because I, I think that was what we had on that one. We we initially got it wrong, but it was Hembeck. Oh, so should we get it wrong again and say no, Hembeck? No. <laughs> no, Hembeck was the correct answer. We guessed oh, okay. uh, John Romita Sr. So or uh, Friends. No, we're going to say Fred Hembeck. It is correct. Yeah. Okay. Two out of three ain't bad. Okay, Loaf. That's right. Mr. Meatloaf to you. We're out.